uh, we pray that you would uh, teach us about your word, and we look forward to looking at John 14, where Jesus first teaches about the rapture of the church, and um, we just pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, help us to learn these things and then apply them in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the title of this lesson is The Promise of the Holy Spirit, John 14. I gave you a handout. This is by Arno Gabeline. He's an older guy. It's about 20 prominent facts taught in the New Testament on the return of the Lord. And I, I did do some changes. I think there are some adjustments needed. I thought that would be helpful, especially this first section is the first time in Scripture. This is why I looked this up, because Dr. Gabeline here recognized that Jesus' teaching in John 14, 1 through 4, was the first mention of the rapture in the Bible. So I'm just going to read what he wrote. It says, The New Testament reveals his coming as a blessed hope unknown in former ages. Whatever revelation the Lord Jesus Christ predicted as to his visible, personal, and glorious return, preceded by the great tribulation and the manifestation of the Antichrist, is also revealed in the Old Testament. But in one passage he spoke of something new, altogether new, unknown to the prophets and to the Old Testament saints. This is found in John 14, 1-4. It is the first intimation of the blessed hope for the saints of the New Testament. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 3 are the first mention of the rapture of the church, and this is the second chapter now of the Upper Room Discourse. Last week we started in chapter 13, but the Upper Room Discourse is to the church which Jesus will form in the future as opposed to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. Olivet Discourse is about the tribulation period, and it is to the Jews. But here he's giving the you know nascent apostles information they need about the coming church age. And he starts off here in chapter 14 with this blessing of the rapture. And note, as it starts off, the rapture doctrine is meant to be a comfort to believers. It says, do not let your heart be troubled. That's how he starts off. Believe in God, believe also in me. And Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, verse 18, says, comfort one another with these words, the words of the rapture. Now, there are many in the church that teach that Christians will be in the rapture. You know, that's the post-tribulation view. There's the mid-tribulation view. There's the pre-wrath rapture view. And if you are going into the tribulation and you read in Revelation 6 through 19 about the horrors of that, how are you going to be comforted? I think that's a very strong argument for the pre-tribulation rapture. So, and this is what Jesus says, in my Father's house, so we know the Father's house is in heaven, are many dwelling places. Some translations say mansions, and it it's really not mansions, it's Actually, dwelling places is in the Greek. Because it's to be a temporary lodging for us, right? It's for seven years. And then we return to the earth. 
So he says, In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. So I'm sure the place is prepared now. And he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So Jesus comes and we meet him in the air, and he returns with us to the Father's house, and that is where the Bema Seat judgment will take place. That's where the marriage of the Lamb will take place. And while this is going on, the tribulation will be raging on the earth. So I am comforted by those words, because <laughs> I don't want to be around. And did, did you see in the news how over in the G20 that they were all agreeing about this minimum global minimum tax of 15% for all the corporations in the world? That's the shadow of the tribulation. So it has to be close. I'm looking forward to it. So then in verse 4, Jesus says, You know the way where I am going. So did they know the way where he was going? Someone disagreed with him there. Had he told them, You know the way to where I am going? He had. You know, back in John 10, John 10 and verse 7, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. That's the way. I am the door. But Thomas says, you know, Thomas was not putting two and two together, and we can't really blame them. You know, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet because that didn't come until Pentecost. And so they're, you know, Jesus will say, and Jesus says things that are pretty cryptic to us, too. <laughs> you know, you're like, what? We have the whole book, and they did not have the whole book at that time. So Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus also, just just before in chapter uh, 13, verse 36, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. What did he mean? Right, he was going to heaven, and the way to heaven was through the cross. So that's what he meant. He said, you will be there, but not yet. You have to found the church. Okay, that's your job. <laughs> and after that, you will be there physically with me, or I guess it's their spirits will. They're still in the intermediate state right now. But the way is Jesus himself. So, and that's, we we know that Second Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? That's what they could look forward to. And the way to get there is trust in Jesus for them and for us too. But Thomas did want to clarify. And then Jesus says this very clear and exclusive statement. I am the way. So this is one of his I am statements. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So there is no way to avoid the penalty of your sins without Jesus. You cannot avoid them through any other way because Jesus bridges God and man. And he can bridge God and man because he is God and he is man. He's the God-man. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So every other religious system is missing that piece. And that exclusivity causes a lot of angst. Every other path you choose will lead to the depths of hell, and that makes people mad. But mad or not, it's the truth. That's what makes evangelism frustrating, because the sin nature uh, is rebellious against God. It's rebellious against this notion 
And so that's why we have to go along with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is in the world. That's his ministry. One of his ministries right now is to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And sometimes we get the sin message wrong. The sin is unbelief. That is what the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of, unbelief in Jesus Christ as the remedy for their problem. And that's what we should tell people. You don't have to reform your life. That's not the issue, per se. The issue is you must accept Jesus Christ and put your trust in him. And then later on, he will begin to reform your life as he convicts you of specific things that says, no, you shouldn't do that. And then you have the power to respond because of the Holy Spirit. So that section, section A, was the way to the Father. The next section, section B, is the Father and the Son, which is verses 8 through 14. Philip wanted to see the Father. Show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. We're, we're dense, you know. So yeah, Jesus, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And that is what, in this gospel earlier, chapter 1, which is kind of the genealogy of Jesus, his heavenly genealogy, says, uh, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So if we want to know what God the Father is like, we look at Jesus. God the Father is just like that, exactly like that, although he is spirit, right? So he can't be seen, per se, but Jesus has the characteristics and uh, the power and the character of the Father. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Read a gospel. Read one of the gospels and you'll know what God is like. Yeah, so Jesus explains the Father to us. He explains God to us. So verse 9, Father, Son, and Spirit are God. All have omniscience, all have omnipotence, and all have omnipresence. That's an interesting thing to think about because Jesus is man, so he is in a single location as man. But as God, he is everywhere present. That's another one of those mind-blowing things. Okay, so verse 10, Do not believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father abiding in me does the works. So Jesus' words and the Father's words are one. Jesus and the Father are unified in what they say. Hebrews 11, verse 3. This is about the words of God and of Jesus, the same words. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Hebrews 4, 13. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it exposes our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 11. The Lord's word will not return to him void. It will accomplish things. God's word is supernatural. And uh, that makes sense since by his word he created the universe. And I think that's why, and I have come to this late in life, that our speech is very important because, uh, you know, God creates with his words, he exposes with his words, he does things with his words, and we in his image can do that too. We can't create physical things with our words, but our words are more powerful than we give them credit for, to damage as well as to build up. So that is why I think the Bible teaches so much about speech and how to 
speak appropriately. So then verse 11, he goes on and says, Believe I am in the Father, and the Father is me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. So he's talking about these miracles that he's performing. And the quarterly had something very good. It had a page, it's page 74, that had all of the miracles of Jesus from all the different Gospels. So there, <clears throat> this is for the benefit of those listening. There are water turned to wine, John 2, 1. Many healings undefined in two Gospels, healing the leper in three Gospels, healing of the centurion's servant in two Gospels, healing Peter's mother-in-law in three Gospels, calming the storm in three Gospels, healing the men of Gadara in three Gospels, healing the lame man three Gospels, healing the hemorrhaging woman in three Gospels, raising Jairus's daughter from the dead, that was his first raising, that's in three Gospels. Healing two blind men in Matthew. Healing a demon-possessed man in Matthew. Matthew, excuse me. Healing the withered hand, three Gospels. Feeding over 5,000, all four Gospels. Walking on the sea, three Gospels. Healing the Syrophoenician's daughter, two Gospels. Feeding the 4,000, two Gospels. Healing the epileptic boy. Healing the two blind men in Matthew. Healing the man with an unclean spirit. Two Gospels, healing the deaf, speechless man in Mark, healing the blind man at Bethsaida in Mark, healing the blind Bartimaeus, two Gospels, the miraculous catch of fish, two Gospels, raising the widow's son from the dead in Luke chapter 7, healing the stooped woman in Luke, healing the man with dropsy in Luke, healing the ten lepers in Luke, healing Malchus' ear, which Peter cut off. In Luke, healing the royal official's son in John, healing the lame man, John, healing the blind man, John, and then raising Lazarus from the dead. That's a lot of miracles. Those are just the recorded ones. And remember, Satan can do miracles too. But if you see something doing all these miracles and his message aligns with scripture, he's real. You know, Jesus says, believe I am in the Father, the Father in, is in me, otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Jesus is the real thing. So then verse 12, he got, goes on to say, He who believes in me, the works I do, he will do also. And then, I think, he shows you the mechanism for doing that. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What a promise. That is the importance of prayer. That is why we have prayer meeting, because Jesus does things. When we ask him, you know, it's a way to draw close also. But um, if you believe in Jesus, the works that he does, you can do also. And remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the apostles. And what did they do? They had the sign gifts in abundance at the beginning of the church age. And they were doing things exactly like Jesus. They were healing. They were raising the dead. They were casting out demons. I think in our day, it is through prayer. I want to look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. So Paul, writing Romans, he's written doctrine for 11 chapters until he gets to this point. He wrote that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is guilty. Then he told us what Christ had done, what Christ had made available. He taught us how we are to walk in the Spirit in Romans 6 through 8. And then in 9 through 11, he explains what happened to the Jews, the Jewish people. So he says, therefore, because of all these things, 
I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Some translations would say, which is your reasonable service of worship. So in view of everything that has been done, it is reasonable. It makes sense that you offer your body for his use. And if you do that, you can do the works that he does. Because the Holy Spirit, which is God, is within you and will empower you. That is how we are to live. We are to live submitted to the Spirit. And, uh, you know, Jesus can use our lives for his work. And he, use, he does the work, and then we get the, ben- we get the credit, which is at the Bema Seat Judgment. We get the credit for the work he does using us. So that's a good deal. Isn't that a good deal? That's, that's a great deal. In the next chapter that we're going to talk about, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So that goes along with what he says here. If you believe in him, so you believe who he is, and that saves you. As you continue to believe in him and believe what he says about various things through reading his word and submitting to that, he will use you in the world to promote his agenda. And then he rewards you for that use at the Bema Seat Judgment. I want to be well rewarded. That is my goal in life. Again, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You know, all through the New Testament, all through the New Testament epistles, we are encouraged to pray. Pray all the time. Pray without ceasing. Pray when it's sunny. Pray when it's raining. Pray at night. Pray in the day. Pray all the time. You're communicating. And that is because the Holy Spirit is inside of us, so we're never alone. So when people look at you and they say, are you talking to yourself? Say, no, no, I'm talking to God. Yeah, I mean, Luke 18.1, I think of every time I drive to prayer meeting, every time. Jesus said, men should always pray and never give up. I especially think of it when I'm feeling bad because supernatural things happen when you pray, and it's very exciting. Okay, now this next section, section C, the Father's love, contains my favorite verse. (coughs) And I'll show you what it is when we get there. So verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Has anyone ever wondered, how are you supposed to love God? I thought about it a lot back in San Antonio when I was 
starting to follow the Lord. And I came across this passage, this, and it, he tells you exactly how to do it. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. That's how you love God. You love God by saying, okay, I'll do it, because I love you. That is how you show your love and appreciation for Jesus. Now, in the Bible, there are a lot of commandments. Do we obey all of the commandments in the Bible? No, we don't. Which commandments do we obey as New Testament believers, as Christians in the Christian church? This took me longer to figure out. What regulates the Christian church? What portion of Scripture regulates the Christian church? All of the Bible is for us. Not all of the Bible is about us. It's the epistles. The epistles regulate the church. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Christ fulfilled the Mosaic law. And so if you put your trust in Christ, he is the end of the law for all who believe. Now we are regulated by the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is spelled out specifically, or it's mentioned, in Galatians 6 verse 2 and Romans 8 verse 2. Romans 8 verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Galatians 6 verse 2, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 mentions this, and this makes it a little more clear, actually. So Romans 9 verse 20, Paul is saying, to the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. That is why he would shave his head to fulfill a vow. That is why he would, you know, continue with the Jewish feasts, things like that. So he might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, the law of Moses. And then he says, though not being myself under the law, Paul realized he was not under the law because he believed in Christ. So that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, okay, so those are the Gentiles, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So Paul says to the Gentiles, I'm not going to do all the Jewish things, but I am under the law of Christ, even around the Gentiles, so that I might win those who are without law. And the law of Christ is spilled out in the New Testament epistles. So one of those things is pray without ceasing. One of those things is do not forsake the meeting together of yourselves. Go to church, in other words. That's part of the law of Christ. Another one is be generous with your giving without making it a specific amount. It doesn't make it a specific amount. It says God loves a cheerful giver. You should settle in your heart what you're going to give so that you're a cheerful giver. Love others as Christ has loved you. That is part of the law of Christ. So in the New Testament epistles, that is what regulates the church. And that is very helpful to know because, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I would start doing things under the Mosaic Law back when I was in San Antonio because I did not understand this. No one taught me that. And uh, it is very helpful to know <laughs> what the Lord wants you to do or not or what it's not important to worry about, you know. That is very, very important. So yeah, we show, and that, that is d discipleship, right? That is taking up your cross and following Jesus when you're saying, I love you, therefore I will obey your commandments. Because his commandments can be inconvenient, can't they? They can be inconvenient. For example, 
So I went to Walmart yesterday shopping. My lovely wife wanted dirt. Okay, so I got two bags of dirt. And uh, I checked out, and I came out, and I had forgot to pay for the dirt because I went through the self thing. And I thought, oh, that's no big deal, you know. And then it was the Holy Spirit says, you know, he who is faithful in little will be faithful also in much. That came to me. <laughs> so around I go again. I mean, that is inconvenient, <laughs> but, but the Lord wants you to do it. So we don't want to be stuck on the trying to fulfill things in the wrong dispensation. We want to know where we are living. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Again, that's only for the church. This is new information. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people to empower them for a task or something. That's why David, in Psalm 51, prayed, please don't take the Holy Spirit from me. It could happen. He saw it happen to Saul. In the church, once the Holy Spirit comes into you, he is in you for how long? Forever. Forever. Right. He never leaves. Sometimes I think we can make it pretty uncomfortable for him. But yeah, not this. It is he who empowers you to live the Christian life. That's why it makes no sense to tell an unbeliever to obey a bunch of things. The unbeliever has does not have the wherewithal to do it. They don't have the power to do it, to obey Christ's commandments until they believe. When they believe, the Holy Spirit comes in and empowers them, and they also receive a new nature. We become partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. And so we have the equipment to act like a Christian once we believe. Verse 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. So after his crucifixion, Jesus appeared not to everyone, but to the apostles. And not only the apostles. I mean, 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us he appeared to up to 500 believers at once. So he would only appear to the believing after his resurrection. Verse 21 is my favorite verse. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and will disclose myself. I like to see Jesus show up. And he has done that for me many times. He has done that for me, and it's through answered prayer, sometimes miraculously answered prayer, you know, amazing answered prayer. I'm like, how did that happen kind of answered prayer. And I find it exceedingly exciting. So then verse 23 if you follow the Lord's word and you're his disciple, you have an intimate relationship with God. Verse 24, he who does not love me, that is not necessarily an unbeliever. You can trust the Lord, believe in him, and be saved from hell, but not love him. And you, why do you not love him? Because it says that he who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. So you continue, you believe on Jesus. He saves you. He makes a promise to you. He will not go back on the promise and yet you live the way you want. That can be done. And there are multiple examples of that in the Bible. Lot is the one that always comes to my mind. He did not love him. He believed in him, but he did not love him because he didn't do what he said. <laughs> you know. And Jesus here tells you that is how you show love to God, by doing what he says. We're out of time, so let me just read this last section. This is Returning to the Father, verses 25 through 31. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of, the wor of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here.